Hey there. Before we get into the show, if you like the order of things, leave us a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening. Welcome to The Order of Things. I'm your host, Alec, and my guest today is Alfie Bound. Whether or not you play video games, Alfie thinks you should care about them. They are supplanting film as the dominant form of pop culture and have a unique connection to contemporary politics. Alfie is author of books like Enjoying It, Candy Crush and Capitalism, In the Event of Laughter, Psychoanalysis, Literature and Comedy, and The PlayStation Dream World. When we spoke, he was in the middle of Operation Earnest Voice. It's an art project, but also a kind of propaganda think tank. So the, the idea is to set up a kind of fake propaganda office that's like making propaganda for left-wing stuff in the spirit of Cambridge Analytica and things like that. Uh, it's like a really bizarre thing to do, but I'm doing it for four days. Alfie is a lecturer at Royal Holloway University, where he teaches media arts and digital activism. Today, we talk about the relationship between technology, video games, and desire. Can you just briefly explain the title? What does PlayStation Dream World mean? Well, I guess my, my view was that... Um, because game game studies and discussions of games has like massively boomed, as you know, in recent years, and like most of the most of the tools people use are like from existing disciplines, other kinds of disciplines, like media studies, or yeah. So you got um, people in from film studies who use the the kind of toolkit of, of movies to understand video games. You've got people in literature studies who kind of use literary kind of literary approaches to think about narratives and video games and things like that. And, you know, my, my view is that video games are incredibly different to all those other forms of media which existed before. You know, they're different to TV, film, uh, literature in kind of vast different ways. So, you know, I was kind of kind of playfully trying to suggest that video games are more like dreams than they are like films or books or TV shows. And what do you mean they're more like dreams? Yeah, I mean, I guess the kind of the dream thing uh, has two kind of say histories one is the kind of psychoanalysis idea so i tried to use kind of like uh freud and later psychoanalytic understandings of dreams to kind of apply to video games uh, and the other thing is actually coming from the philosophy of walter benjamin um who who also writes about dreams in this book called the arcades project and it's i think mm-hmm. very interesting connection that like in the we used we obviously we call video game places arcades um, but arcades were initially these kind of 19th century glass structures which emerged in Paris. And, you know, Walter Benjamin discusses that when you go into these kind of big glass buildings, crystal palaces, of world of commodities and pleasures and stuff, uh, it's dreamlike. And the, the, the person wandering through the Parisian arcade in the 19th century is this kind of dreaming subject, dreaming individual who experiences their world around them as if as if in a dream. And, and my view is that it's not a coincidence that video games are also played in arcades and that when we enter our phones and computers, PlayStation headsets, uh, you know, Xboxes, we are also entering this kind of dreamland of uh, images and commodities. And we, we experience the game in this kind of half awake dreamlike state. And I tried to kind of use that to, um, yeah, to explore how video games kind of affect us, how we, how we get pleasure from them and what their politics are and things like that. And you would say the dream, the dream world created by video games is inherently different than, say, a movie or television. I think so. I think so. I, I think it's um, it's vastly different because um, it, it's sort of puts the the mind and body of the player into it in a way that um, 
film and TV don't, you know, it's, I mean, of course, TV and film are not always consumed passively, but nevertheless, the, the video game puts the user to work in its own world uh, in a way that other older forms of media don't. Uh, just as when you're dreaming, you know, you appear to be in there and an active participant in the dream and, and you make choices which you're partially responsible for, but which are also partially out of your control. Right. We're the ones stealing the cars or shooting the people or yeah. creating the portals or something yeah, like that. And it's not always up to us uh, how we behave in those spaces, just as in video games. You're kind of inhabiting the dream of, of something else or of someone else or, or something else when you, when you play games. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm obviously kind of being playful with the concept. I know there's massive differences between dreaming and gaming, but it, it seems right. like a useful way of kind of thinking through some of the bizarre and weird pleasures and experiences that you get from, from gaming. And you know, most gamers, I think, will instinctively feel there's some truth in that. Like when you when you turn your PlayStation off or when you take off your VR headset, when you finally pull yourself away from your console or PC, you, you do have a kind of feeling of coming back to reality, which is kind of comparable with the feeling of waking up after an utterly bizarre dream and uh, and things like that. So I try to kind of capture this element of, of uh, gaming, which is actually probably quite common to, to most regular gamers, I think. And you characterize it as video games both kind of create desire, but also feed off of desire. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I suppose this is like one of the more kind of controversial aspects. Like, I, I, I definitely, obviously, I'm not under the illusion that like, you know, games make us want things and do things. I, I'm not, uh, some, some people kind of maybe misinterpreted my position or maybe I was kind of careless and came across at certain points as, as if I was saying, well, you know, look, video games make us want to do things. They control our desires. You know, I'm, I'm definitely not part of that kind of older kind of baby boomer narrative, you know, where people <laughs> say, oh, don't let kids play Grand Theft Auto because they'll go out and copy it or something. You know, I don't think they, they put nasty ideas into our heads. I want to talk about that a little bit more because you had written an article in The Guardian that got celebrated by a lot of people and also a lot of flack from a lot of different kinds of people, some of which were very extreme alt-righty types. But you write, for instance, right-wing ideologies have been overrepresented and dominant throughout the history of video games. Although affected by context, video games have long focused on the expulsion of, quote, aliens like Space Invaders to XCOM. Fear of impure infection, Half-Life to Last of Us, Border Control, mis Missile Commander versus, uh, to Plants vs. Zombies, Territory Acquisition, Command and Conqueror to Splatoon, Empire Building, Civilization to Tropico, Princess Recovery, Mario to Zelda, and Restoration of Natural Harmony, Sonic to Farmville. <laughs> and I think that on this point about video games compelling us to do things, I think what a lot of people got out of it is playing Space Invaders is going to make us sort of right-wing xenophobes that are afraid of aliens. <laughs> yeah, um, and obviously it isn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean that, that part was actually, there's actually a Breitbart article about what a kind of moron I am, which quotes that. But, you know, that's also a kind of badge of honor for me to be, <laughs> at least I pissed <laughs> off the right people as well as some others. <laughs> right. So I guess my question is, what, what specifically draws the line? Because even as I read this, and I read your book, and I love 95% of it, and I think I disagree with 5%, which is pretty standard, I would say. But it's easy to read, even from someone on the left, a kind of like Tipper Gore, rap music is making kids violent kind of mm. uh message in here. So, so how do you sort of extricate yourself from yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, look, this, this was an example of something kind of partly my own lack of clarity and, and partly a kind of misinterpretation, I suppose, that 
that you know this this really wasn't how I wanted it to come across. I, I'm absolutely pro games. I've been a gamer since you know probably, I think my seventh birthday. I got a Game Gear, uh, and from then on, I've, I've barely barely not plays games play i play every day give it pretty much and i'm a massive uh, supporter of games and the whole premise of the book is that games are the dominant form of popular culture now you know they have a kind of 50 percent plus penetration rate worldwide and whether you like it or not they are the new i think it was even since i wrote the book that they over that gaming has overtaken cinema as the biggest entertainment industry financially so you know, they are the future of entertainment. They're here whether you like it or not. I really uh, w- was annoyed with myself for allowing it to come across like I was kind of anti-games or something. I, I was, I, the premise of the book really is to think about politics and games and to, to suggest that, um, you know, this new form of, of popular culture, which is v- fast taking over as the, the, the most important form of entertainment for the future, is needs to be the left wing the left wing needs to become more critically engaged in the production and discussion of video games because to my mind the left is underrepresented in the gamer space now that is actually quite controversial among gamers to make that claim because a lot of people think of video games as i mean it's not uncommon for people on the right to think that video games are generally liberal and left-wing ideology which also seems completely wrong (laughs) Yeah, which I think is wrong. I, I, I think there's a, a conception among on the right that um, you know games are left wing ideology, and that I think is is wrong. And obviously, when I sort of said that games were right wing, obviously that riled up people on the right who think they're left wing. The second group is the is the problem that a lot of game designers actually identify as being left wing themselves. And they, are un- they, they believe that because they're left-wing, um, the games they make are left-wing. Uh, I also think that's false. I think that um, you might, you know, because some, some people kind of responded to my arguments by saying, well, we did a survey, for example, of 100 game designers and 60 of them are Democrats. And that proves games are predominantly left-wing. No, this is, this is completely wrong. And that's why I use psychoanalysis in the book to explore that the fact that you, you might consciously be consider yourself a liberal, you can still produce a game which is tends towards kind of conservative politics. And even if... Um, um, so, and this can be very complex to, to unpick and to dig out. So I was trying to be provocative there, I guess, and say that, you know, despite these, consum- these assumptions on the right and among people who create games, that this is a liberal space, I think that there's a noticeable gap in the gaming industry and that most of the patterns that you see are, tend to favour a kind of right-wing or neoliberal or just liberal ideology rather than left-wing. Uh, ideas. And I think the left should kind of start to inhabit the gamer space more directly, more passionately. And, and actually, I think that that has started to happen over the last five years. And, and what I would think of as left wing games have begun to emerge more and more. Yeah. And I want to talk about this mixture of compelling our desires and also feeding off mm. of our desires, because while I wouldn't say, and I don't think you're saying either that space invaders are going to make us vote for uh, Donald Trump, there's certainly, if we even look at uh, movies, there is a kind of like the art reflects the time. So in the 50s, you get a lot of alien others destroying human individuality, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And we can say that that mirrors Cold War ideology and stuff like that. Now, I don't think anyone would say we shouldn't show that movie because it's going to turn us, uh, make us go into a new Red Scare. But I, I do. I mean, there is certainly something interesting in that. When you think about the major paradigms of games like first person shooters, which are usually like 
kill the terrorist or, you know, war games like beat the Nazis, stuff like that. Um, There's a lot of that kind of stuff. And those are often the most popular games. Of course, you have other games like, I don't know, the the Sims or uh, Tetris or anything, which certainly I, I would say don't fit into there. But I guess, you know, talk about how video games can sort of compel the desire and feed off of it uh, a little bit more if you would i think like all um culture i mean video games do do kind of respond to to what we already want of course they do they don't emerge from a vacuum they emerge out of political conditions and so on but they they also kind of proliferate and modify desires it's much more kind of dialectical it's not that video games are evil and they're warping our natural desires into a horrible future more case that there is no kind of natural desires all desires are political and and those kind of desires produce video games but video games don't just give us what we want they also construct what we want and that that's a really important that might seem like in the abstract not particularly important point to make but you know let's take for example um the example of dating games or relationship simulators a, a popular one uh, what is it daddy dating simulator yeah, daddy Which dating, i mean the ones I, I, i'm fascinated by is things like uh, super seducer uh, which got banned from the UK PlayStation Store. I think you guys can still get it over there, which is basically a pickup artistry mm. game. Um, and then I've got a VR game called Summer Lesson, um, which is like one of the most creepiest things. It's a Japanese game where you basically play as an older kind of patriarchal guy who, who's like a tutor or a teacher of most of the young girls oh, he no. interacts with. You, you just kind of stroke their hair and they like call you sensei and bow to you and, and show you <laughs> no. like this, like wear skimpy clothes and things. It's a really horrible kind of game. And of course, on the one hand, they are designed to respond to an already existing desire, right? So, you know, there are certain uh, people out there in in Japan and and the US and UK who, uh, to whom that answers their kind of patriarchal misogynist desires, right? Um, You know, there's some interesting discussions of this on the ContraPoints YouTube channel. She's kind of uh, uh, started to foray into commenting on games in, I think, really interesting ways. Um, but, but they don't just, you know, respond to an already existing kind of patriarchal misogynistic desire. They also proliferate that and construct that as a desire which exists. And, and, you know, young, it is quite possible some people would play that and those kind of games. I'm not, I'm not saying in a sort of simple way that, well, you play summer lesson and then you suddenly turn into a kind of horrible seedy old man. It's not, it's not like that. It's just a, <laughs> a part of a wider politics of desire, which presents that as a, as a legit, a legitimate form of desire and proliferates that and, and, and presents relationships in this kind of gamified way as well, uh, which all kinds of virtual dating app tend to do. And yes, I think that, you know, dating simulators and, and the gamification of dating changes the future of relationships and the way in which people desire each other in society, uh, as well as being a kind of response to it. Right. So, so that's just one example, the, the dating games. But where there's a dialectical relationship between, um, you know, desire, which the game responds to, and the the kind of effects of those games on desires, and I, and I think all games would kind of broadly fit that. Uh, that's just, right. just that example kind of makes it kind of more crystal clear. But but other games might more subtly uh, engage the desire of the user. So it's absolutely not saying that right, if you shoot Arabs in Call of Duty. You're going to become a pro-American, you know, uh, you know, you're not you're not going to suddenly start supporting American foreign policy in your life. It, it's not clear cut in this way, but it's like saying none of it's innocent. It, it also doesn't have no effect. Right. And that's another connection to the concept of dreams. When, if you have a dream, you, you, you might I don't want to be like reveal my, my nasty dreams to you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, you might have a dream where you, you do something you wouldn't usually do in real life. It, it doesn't mean that you're like 
going to suddenly become the person you were in your dream, but nevertheless, it might affect, uh, you know, it's not completely innocent, you know, it, it still kind of has an effect on, on the individual. And, and yeah, if, 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 the, if, if video games have that quality and they're political things produced by people with political agendas, then they, they have an influence on, on global politics, so just, as, just as film did, of course. You know, Hollywood and, and, and other uh, forms of cinema did affect the political climate in the 60s and 70s. It, so it shouldn't be surprising to, to see that video games are, are set to do that for future generations, I think. Well, let's talk about, uh, you said the left wing needs their own games. I think this is a really interesting question because there's a game called Spec Ops The Line. I'm not sure if you're familiar. Spec Ops The Line is a game that takes place. You're an American soldier in the Middle East. There's a commander that's gone rogue and you have to kill this commander. But slowly throughout the game, you realize that you're dealing with some post-traumatic stress and you've committed all these terrible war crimes. And it's interesting because you're the one, you know, you're shooting people, but then it flashes back to these things that you remember doing, shooting these people. And in fact, you were killing civilians. And I think there's a use of white phosphorus and also mirrors the uh, the plot of Heart of Darkness. It's sort of Heart of the Darkness set there. So I think that's like a really interesting example of a, a left wing game. Although I will say I love that game, but the mechanics of it aren't great. And maybe I'm being nitpicky, but I think you know, there's other left wing games like Papers, Please, where you play a is an immigration officer deciding who gets into the country. You had sent me a game called Novi News, where you uh, determine what gets published in the news. And it's kind of this commentary on corporate controlled media and things like that. So do you think there's a fundamental problem with <laughs> left wing games being boring at all? Because not of Spec Ops the line, but certainly when I look at games like Paper Please or Novi News, I'm like, oh, these aren't as fun as just dominating the world. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important question. And I think, um, okay, so there, there's one thing I think is relevant here as well, that like part of my, like a key aspect of what I'm trying to claim with regards to this kind of politics and gaming is that the narrative like level is only, only half or less than half of the game. So, um, you know, for example, well, in, in game studies, there's also this kind of term like called ludology, um, which is basically, I guess, put simply the study of gameplay. And people tend to become either a narratologist or ludologist, meaning they are so sort of like they either discuss the narrative or they discuss the gameplay. I think it's, it's, both of those things are a little bit reductive and you have to kind of think about the relationship between them in order to define whether a game's left wing or not. A lot of discussion surrounds the narrative only. For instance, people, when I made this claim that games don't tend to be left wing, a lot of people responded with lists. There's a couple of like lists of left wing games. Basically, the article is based like this idiot Alfie Bound said this. Here's nine games which prove him wrong kind of thing. There's a couple of these out there. Right. And in almost every case, the game is only left wing on the narrative level. So, I mean, my favorite example of this is Assassin's Creed. Okay, like the narrative laid over the top tends to be in support of oppressed classes, you know, things like that, right? Mm -hmm. The mechanics of the game, the experience of playing it are, are absolutely not. It, it's just, it's basically the same as many other kind of open world games. Like I'm, I'm not saying that Assassin's Creed is right wing on the gameplay level at all. I'm just saying that it's only liberal at the level of story not at the level of like actual the pleasures derived from playing it the ideas of it so th there's a, a really important distinction i think when we start to categorize games okay this one's left wing this one's right wing 
if you're going to do that, I mean, some people would say you shouldn't do that anyway. If you're going to do that, you need to think quite carefully about how you mean that. Are you talking on the narrative level, on the level of gameplay, on the level of the, the desires that the game seems to produce or, or respond to? And that those, are, those are quite complicated things to kind of separate sometimes. So I think with Papers, Please, you've got a game which is like structurally and on the level of desire quite left wing. Its, it's actual mechanics are very, very different to any existing games. I think that's why you found it boring, because you've been trained to derive pleasure <laughs> in a different kind of gaming, you know, and I don't, I don't think it's because it's not as fun as running around shooting people. I think it's because fundamentally right. the mechanics are different to the ones in which you've, you know, you've, you're, you've been tra trained to take pleasure or, or those things have developed. Like, the more I played Papers, Please, the more pleasure I started to get out of it. Uh, and I mean, I can think of some more examples, I think, of, of really exciting games in that regard, something like Dwarf Fortress uh, or Everything, PS4 game called Everything, which is really interesting, utterly bizarre mechanics. And, you know, these are like experimental on the level of gameplay. And yeah, I think we find them more boring at first because they don't tally with the, the, the way in which we, we've been, we've come to approach gaming. But I believe in time, they will be just as fun as mowing people down in GTA with a AK-47. <laughs> <laughs> um, you talked about ludology uh, and narrative. I think it's, there's an interesting concept called ludonarrative dissonance, which has come up. I guess these games are like Bioshock is an mm. example. And for people who are not familiar, it takes place in this like underwater leaky utopia. There's a villain who's kind of a stand in for John Galt from the Ayn Rand stuff. but. I don't remember the specifics of, of Bioshock, but for instance, ludonarrative dissonance would be a dissonance between the narrative and the mechanics of the gameplay, where let's say you've got a game about free will and exerting your free will, but the game's mechanics only allow you to do a limited amount of things. There is a dissonance there. Yes. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. I just thought, think it's mm. interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think it can be used really in interestingly. Isn't, isn't the um, Spec Ops a, a nice example of that? Because the, it's the fact that you're complicit when you're, when you're doing the first person shooting. And then when the narrative reveals um, the aspects of PTSD, that throws the, the, that produces the experience of ludonarrative dissonance, where you've been doing something which is then kind of thrown out of kilter or, or whatever, and that can that can force the gamer to confront something. I think that's certainly one, um, yeah, it's one tactic. It's actually often used as a criticism of games, but actually it can be a very interesting uh, thing for a game to to produce, and I think that can that can serve progressive political purposes. Uh, it's sort of one way of, of doing that. So I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, in the intro of PlayStation Dream World, you say people often view algorithms and machines as non-ideological, that they simply execute a task or analyze something objectively, but you have seriously refer to the ideology of robots. What do you mean by that? My, my sense here is that people kind of labor under the um, illusion often that um, the technology itself is apolitical. It's just a question of what we do with it, which determines the politics. You know, this this is actually not specifically to do with gaming, but to do with um, the tech that's in development at the moment in general. Like, obviously, like the kinds of technology which gets funded, the kinds of um, robots which um, receive financial backing, and the kinds of robots we decide to create 
are political things, right? So it, it's not that, oh, well, self-driving cars are here because of, you know, apolitical natural advancement of technology. Not at all. Uh, self-driving cars are here because we decided that those were the robots we would fund and create. So when self-driving cars cause a problem for the job market and, and plunge us into a kind of horrible platform capitalism of some kind, that is not like, oh, well, what do we do? They're here to stay. It's, it's like, no, uh, the robots uh, have an ideology which has been built into them through the processes which led to their, their creation. And, and I think, again, the left needs to think about this. Uh, so you know, I guess what I say about the left needs to become critically involved in the production of games would extrapolate out to other kinds of technology. Uh, on the topic of this technology, you write in a Guardian article that a variety of pop culture artifacts from Black Mirror to Blade Runner 2049 warn that the robot lovers of the future may do nothing more than narcissistically affirm the user. This, however, is less a prediction of the future than a description of where we already are. Can you explain mm, that? Okay. Um, okay. My, yeah, my, my cool example to explain this is a, a chatbot called Replica. Have you heard of that? Uh, no, I have not. Okay, it's an AI chatbot, and it's designed to be a friend, I guess. It's an AI friend. It's basically like a WhatsApp conversation with an AI. It's got an interesting history because the woman who built it um, lost her best friend and um, created this AI as a kind of memory of him to, to kind of um, uh, replace the, the hole in her life through her lost friend. Which is literally a Black Mirror episode. Yeah, which is literally a Black Mirror episode. Um, and... Um, and yeah, uh, the yeah. So again, you know, this is why where I'm making that point that this is actually something that's already here. But the technology, the algorithms uh, that Replica is based on, is uh, is that it only learns from from you. So it essentially learns to be you uh, and reflect yourself back to you. Uh, and yet, it's under the guise of uh, a friend. You know, I, and I think we can see that pattern in online dating, for example, that the the structures of uh, most match match group. Um, I mean, there are some more interesting dating sites, but um, you know, most match group type, uh, most match group sites tend to focus on this this kind of idea of the lover uh, as a reflection of the self, and we can see the technology kind of reflecting that in examples like Replica. Uh, so, you know, this this idea that your best friend, your closest partner, is a kind of mirror or reflection of you, which is this kind of odd narcissism, is is very much already here. And yeah, and, and video games do play a role here too as well. And, and again, the dating simulators we mentioned. Um, and kind of ideal avatars, things like that. Um, yeah, this, this is quite interesting that this is kind of emerging that, that uh, yeah, and it, it, goes across, it goes across from online dating to actual technology. And then there's um, the example of Trump.dating. Have you heard of that? I have, but uh, there is an interesting podcast about, or, or there, there's like a, a website where it will make a dating site for you. You pay them like a couple thousand dollars and it will just create the website. So I think there was like, Trump.dating and also never Trump.dating. And they had like the same users. And the reason is, is because they were collecting from the same, the, the company that launches these da dating sites that they charge people for amalgamate all the users into one actual thing. So it's a giant scam. Like when you're on Trump.dating, you're going to find users from never Trump, but also like golfersmeet.com and furriesmeet.com and all the different things. But, um, it is interesting that it was someone's idea to begin with. <laughs> yeah, but um, but yeah, I mean that that's also a kind of you're right. That's a scam. There's also a sense that this this kind of narcissistic matching of people with with mirrors of themselves might have a kind of political angle somewhere as well because you, you're not seeing Corbyn dot dating. <laughs> well, you are seeing someone uh, tried to create. It was a Facebook group, I think, called OK Comrade. Uh, are you familiar with that? Oh no, but I'm definitely going to look that up. That sounds really interesting. 
They, uh, it was a Facebook group and they were making a site and it was like under construction and it might still very well be, but yeah, I, I mean, I think I would certainly people on the right are looking for other people on the right. I, but I wouldn't, I think people on the left equally do. And it kind of reminds Damn. me of, um, Elaine's book, Elaine Badu's book on love. He kind of talks about our tendency to view love as kind of an act of consumption where we're sort of checking off boxes like we would when selecting a refrigerator or something like that, that has all the features we need, which kind of destroys any ability for, you know, random chance. But but more importantly, I think to your point of narcissism, that we're looking for someone exactly like us. And I think you'd be hard pressed. I mean, I can speak more to this because of the people I know, but like, you know, my friend certainly wouldn't uh, date a person who's a, a Trump supporter or like a xenophobe or uh, I think even in literal ways, people don't want to date outside of their income bracket. Yeah, and I, I, I think, um, yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm, I'm not saying that right wing people do this and lefties don't. I'm saying that there's something inherently right leaning about this logic. Uh, mm. And I, I agree with Alan Badiou and also with uh, there's an interesting book by Shretchko Horvat called The Radicality of Love where he tries to respond to that and, and sort of say that what, what's needed uh, in the relationship between the left and love is uh, a kind of so, a kind of solidarity with otherness or something, you know, so, right. so, so that, you know, what, what, what we would need to do is, of course, we, we shouldn't create a, a Corbyn dot dating or a, a, you know, a comrade dating site. Instead, we would need a different set of algorithms which are much more open to possibilities of chance and, you know, uh, cross identity solidarity instead of this kind of identity politics dating. I, I think that's a good, a good point. And, 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 and yeah, they, these, so it's not that, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing this to ourselves on the left, <laughs> but um, we could think about more interesting ways of reconceiving those things, I think. Do you find there's a, a stigma in academia when talking about video games so extensively? Because it seems like there's not many people doing it. Um, there's not so many in the UK, you know, actually I'm, I'm lucky I'm, I'm writing now because I'm at, so I'm at Royal Holloway University of London now. I've just been here three months. Um, loving it because um next year we start a program called um it's a ba in it's called video game art and design and uh, we'll have 50 percent um coders who will teach our, our students how to write games um programming in, in unity and so on um and then 50 percent is kind of philosophers which is like that's the group i'm in um where we will like think about games as a critical object of study you know and, and how important they are and stuff so i guess i'm lucky to be at one of the places where this is happening yeah, well, is there a stigma? I think most people, I think it probably was a couple of years ago when I started working on games about 2014, so only about five years ago. I think then, yeah, people were like, no, this is, what are you doing? This is like mindless compared to literature or film. But now I think, no, I think people like have actually, you know, come around to the, the, the awareness that, um, you know, whatever you think of them, they're, they're here to stay and that they're a very important piece of culture. And yeah, nowadays I'd say it's... Uh, yeah, it's completely changed. People are really up for uh, video games as a serious thing. And then there's a political thing as well, which has really changed. I mean, the idea that they're just a bit of fun and don't have politics tied closely to them has, has kind of gone, which is good, I think. Was there any specific uh, pushback that you remember when you were starting out? Any fun anecdotes of like a older department chair telling you what you were doing was not real philosophy. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I told, when I told my, my PhD supervisors that I was going to drop literature and go to game studies, they, they all thought I was as mad, but, but <laughs> actually it was just at the time of Gamergate, you know? So, and I think that Gamergate, you know, for all its kind of ills, um, that does, you know, that, that marks the point at which people began to take gaming cultures seriously. 
Yeah, I mean, you still see people saying it. I mean, like you, you see like game developers, like the you know, like the Division Two, for example. Which is is that out yet? Not out yet, is it? No, I've played the first one. Yeah, uh, and the guy who's who's you know, this is like set in a dystopian Washington D.C. about like broken America and so on. And then like the the guy who who made it, the the it's the the Ubisoft guy. I've forgotten his name. He, 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 like, when he was asked about it, was like, no, this has nothing to do with politics whatsoever. It's completely, <laughs> it's like, how, how can you even think that? Like, wh- one minute of, like, even the trailer is, like, so deeply political. <laughs> like, um, but, yeah, so, so th- this is, like, still an ongoing assumption about games that needs to be kind of fought. Um, but, but generally speaking, you know, this, is, this is now, I think it's now a very exciting aspect of academia and journalism. Uh, people, people get really riled up about it, as you've, as you've seen. You know, you, if you say something about video games and politics, people become very angry. Other people are very interested. You know, it really sets people on edge and, and gets people fighting and battling over these things. And I think that's because there's a general awareness that this is, like, damn important now. So I think it's that time, Alfie. Just some quick context for the listener. Alfie agreed to read some mean tweets about himself. So here it is. They're bad people and I don't, okay, I, I don't know if all of them are bad people. It seems like at least 90% of them are bad people that I don't want to personally <laughs> promote their Twitter following. So yeah, just uh, yep. read away. I'm ready. Okay. So here's the first one. Um, that Alfie Bowen article is so stupid for so many reasons, and I've been trying not to waste any more thought on it than I already have. But Jesus, fuck that dude is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next one. <laughs> this is fun. If you keep referring to Alfie Bowen's garbage in The Guardian as a legitimate citation for games cause real world violence and mass shootings, just surrender your journalist degree immediately. <laughs> This is a, another one from the same person. This one is a, a, just like a notorious, I, I don't even know the degree of white supremacist he, he, he is or, or alt-right. I, I, can't, I can't be bothered to, to separate them. But, I mean, um, this stuff on Twitter is, is way softer than some of the stuff I, I saw on the chat boards and stuff. Oh God! <laughs> um, there was actually one. a funny one. I can't remember what it is, but it's, it's, it, there was a funny tweet from the, a, the comedian called Alfie Brown. Um, and someone had sent him a nasty tweet about what a bad journalist he was. Uh, and then he was like, no, that's not me. <laughs> and then he like also tweeted about me calling me a soy boy or something else. Um, <laughs> uh, but now I've, I've kind of, I've actually bonded with comedian Alfie Brown over the issue on Twitter. So like we're friends now. Um, oh, here we go. Uh, Alfie Brown is a boring little taint who thinks his worthless criticism of video games will alter the medium for millions of people as some sort of political delivery system. See, this one, <laughs> this one reminds me of an in, important point, because I, I actually did a, a, a more... Oh, no, this, this refers to um, a newer article, actually, not the one I got most of the criticism for. This refers to a newer article in The Guardian. Um, yeah, and it's really interesting, because a lot of people on the on the right were like shocked saying oh he act this guy actually thinks that games should be left-wing propaganda and they thought that that was immoral of me to say because there's there's an assumption that we should that games shouldn't be too political you know this is why the division two developer constantly denies that the game is political even when it is because there's actually still an existing idea in games that they shouldn't be directly prescriptive politically my, my point is not that they should be but that they already are whether you like it or not so it's not, I'm not saying, look, games are apolitical. We should actually make directly political games. No, I'm saying games are directly political. 
and they always have been. It's a question of thinking about what that politics is and whether we would like to change it at all. All right. Are there any more of these? These are fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Farmville makes you a Nazi. Laughing icon. <laughs> MSM goes full MSN. <laughs> this, this, by the way, is Jesus the person Christ. with the Nazi symbol, the little OK hand sign. Pro Sweden and freedom of speech. Femme and PC are cancer. Ultra right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so here I'm quite happy to be criticised by this this geezer. Uh, all right, now <laughs> next up. Gosh, you found a lot. You found a lot of these. Aren't <laughs> I'm <it>? thorough. <laughs> <laughs> this one is this satire. Please tell me this is satire. <laughs> yeah, that that's the 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 article I got uh, the most uh, criticism for. All right, last one. Okay, and then I'll yeah. Oh, this is good. Yeah. Start off your Monday with a fresh cup of coffee and a tasty plate of bullshit. Explore the mind of Alfie Baum, an individual capable of painting games like Horizon Zero Dawn, The Last of Us, and even Super Mario as fronts for alt-right ideologies. How did I not see it myself? <laughs> see, that's, this, this, this is funny. This guy can have it. All right, Alfie, what are you... So now you're working on a game about love? Oh, sorry, now you're working on a book about love? Yeah, yeah, but uh, as I say, so so it's, it's not like um, you know we we mentioned in our chat uh, both Bad to Use book uh, and Shreshko Horvat's book. Um, it, it's not really in the the line of though. I'm I'm very interested in those guys' arguments, but it's not really in the line of that because I'm not trying to like theorize love. It's, it's very specifically about new technologies. So, like yeah, as I said, smart condoms feature heavily. They're like bizarre kind of. And is that like a Fitbit for your penis? Yeah, basically. Yeah, you put pop it on, and and they were interestingly they were marketed as a kind of feminist thing in the early stages because it was like, okay, men are going to have to get good at sex now. Um, But actually, it's obviously this kind of bro culture of like sexual prowess comparison and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, So yeah, I'm I'm exploring the politics of new technologies of 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 love, so uh, sex robots, online dating algorithms, smart condoms, VR and AR relationships maybe even VR porn and stuff like that, just to kind of think about how these kind of actual concrete new emergent technologies might like influence the sphere of, of love and relationships and friendships too. What's the most outlandish sex tech you've seen? Uh, well, I'll tell you a good one is these kind of this robot brothel opening in New York. That's a kind of queer. Um, and I, I totally agree with the logic of it. They're, they're, I think it's called Unicult, the, the place that they seem mm-hmm. like absolute nutters to me. But I agree with the idea that basically they're saying that existing relationships with robots are misogynistic and patriarchal. Let's build a kind of queer, queer feminist uh, sex robot brothel. Um, hmm. uh, so it's interesting and that's the reverse of, of the icon which is the smart condoms I'd say those two are like kind of most bizarre and interesting things I've encountered yeah, yeah. A, a Fitbit for your penis that allows you to compare <laughs> your sexual prowess with your, your male friends on 4chan and uh, an alternative kind of sex robot brothel and, and, and it is actually related to gaming I'm calling the book something like gamifying, Lo- gamifying love or something because it's, it's all about this kind of so I'm still I'm still working on games and, and how relationships become kind of gamified and also games which help with that process as well I can't wait to read it uh, thank you so much where where should people find you on the uh, internet so I'll rejoin Twitter if people want to send me some abuse luckily I wasn't on Twitter during that period of where, we, where all these tweets came so I was so, 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 <laughs> so I think I'm at leftist gamer on Twitter leftist underscore gamer and yeah that's probably the best way and they could just I could just be googled as well all right Alfie Bound, the author of PlayStation Dream World definitely check it out thank you so much Alfie I uh, really enjoyed it Alec that was fantastic
Cheers. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you're listening, iTunes, Google Play, wherever. Reach out on Twitter. We're at Crit Theory, C-R-I-T Theory. You can find links to Alfie's articles and books in the description. Until next time. Thank you.